I think as we move forward as a culture and, and, and as, a, as a country, the need to be able to understand if things are verifiable and trustworthy or not is only going to grow, and it's not just financial information. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it is all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. Your host is Peter Margaritas, the man whose name is pronounced like a cocktail, but spelled like an inflammation. Peter is the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of his business, The Accidental Accountant. Peter's goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 80. And today my guest is a good friend of mine, Boyd Search, who is the president and CEO of the Georgia Society CPAs. Prior to becoming the CEO of the Georgia Society of CPAs, Boyd was the Vice President of Education and Training at the Ohio Society of CPAs. Boyd took over the reins in Georgia in 2011, and our discussion centers around changing a corporate culture and the impact that the Georgia Society of CPAs is making on its members, associates, and the profession. Before we begin the interview, I'd like to talk about the first five episodes of this podcast that are qualified for CPE self-study credit under the NASB category of personal development. Those interviews are with Clark Price, who's the retired CEO of the Ohio Society of CPAs, Mike Scorantino, who is the author of the book Gratitude Marketing, Tom Hood, who's the CEO of the Maryland Association of CPAs, Ed Mendelowitz, who's a partner in the accounting firm of Witham, Smith & Brown, and Carl Ulrichs, who's a human resource professional at the insurance company of Gregory & Appel. These episodes are located on the Business Learning Institute's self-study website, and they are mobile-friendly. Go to their website and create an account on your computer and purchase an episode. Now you can listen to that episode on your mobile device at any time, like on your daily commute or while you're working out or while you're at your desk. When you're finished, take the review and final exam on your mobile device or even on your computer. It's that easy. While all selected Improv's No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the Business Learning Institute self-study website are eligible for CPE self-study credit. You can get the detailed instructions on how to create your account and purchase an episode by visiting my website at petermargaritas.com and clicking on the graphic, Listen, Learn, and Earn, Improv is No Joke podcast, on the homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and new flexible way of receiving CPE credit. I'm also in the process of writing my next book with the working title of Financial Storytelling, and I'm previewing content on my social media. If you'd like to preview this content, connect with me on Facebook by searching The Accidental Accountant, on Twitter and Instagram by searching P. Margaritas, and on LinkedIn, just search my name, Peter Margaritas. Now, there are two Peter Margaritases in the greater Columbus area, but only one who is a CPA. And for the holidays, you can purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke. Use the improvisation to create positive results in leadership and life for only $14.99 and the shipping's free by going to my website, petermargaritas.com, and clicking the Available Now icon. 
In addition, you can download Improv is No Joke audiobook for $14.99 so you can listen on the go. You can receive a 10% discount by using the word improv at checkout. If you would like a bulk order for your office or as gifts to your clients, contact me at peter at petermargaritas.com for volume discounts. Now, let's get to this interview with Boyd Search. Boyd Search, it's, it's taken a lot of hard work to, to, to find time in your busy schedule. I finally got you to be a guest on my podcast, and thank you so very much. I'm so looking forward to our conversation, my old friend. I am glad to be with you, but you're right. It's totally my schedule and not me uh, ducking you that has us finally together. You're right. <laughs> uh, and, and just so Alan and and Chris and some of the others know, it, it was his schedule. He was not trying to you know duck out on this. Uh, and, and I'm glad we got you on on the podcast. Um, for those of you who don't who don't know Boyd, Boyd, why don't you kind of give them a little bit of your background? Uh, I'm an Ohio kid, born and raised, lived there most of most of my life. I'm fourth generation Buckeye, um, so a lot of Ohio State grads uh, in my family. Uh, married with uh, three daughters, and I've spent uh, basically my whole career outside of a job I had for a couple years out, out of Ohio State with state CPA societies, working first for about 14 years for the Ohio Society of CPAs, and then. Moving to Georgia uh, in 2011 uh, and working for the where I do now for the Georgia Society of CPAs. And I might add, you have a beautiful wife and three lovely daughters. Thank you, and and don't forget the dog Brutus, because oh, in yeah. Georgia, Georgia you can have a dog named Brutus. You don't you, you don't do that in Ohio really, but um, down here you can. <laughs> and uh, I, I would imagine it's a little bit of a challenge being a, a Buckeye fan and a Big Ten fan in the middle of SEC country. Um, it was to start, and then we did this little thing uh, where we beat Alabama and then uh, Oregon and won the national championship, and since then have have gotten a little more respect down in these here parts. <laughs> now, is that that's like me. I I grew up in SEC country, and living in the Big Ten country was it, it was an adjustment. Let's just say it was an adjustment. Except for basketball season, when your team usually does pretty well. Yes, except for basketball season, what we do when we do very well, and looking forward to maybe another another good year. And you said you were 14 years at the Ohio Society, and then you took the role of CEO of the Georgia Society. And remind me, how long was Gary Julian in the job prior? Uh, about 11 years. About 11 years. And, and, his, and the person who came before him was? Jim Martin, and uh, he was... He, he was not technically the first employee of the Georgia Society, but for all practical purpose, he was the first real employee of the Georgia Society and um, was the executive director, was his title, for uh, 35 years. Wow. So you got somebody there for 35 years. You got somebody there for 11 years. And here comes the guy from Ohio into the Georgia Society CPAs. I, I would assume it was somewhat of a culture shock. For me or for them? <laughs> uh, for both. Yes, yes. Uh, in some ways and in some ways not. Um, so I guess for me and my family, coming to, coming to Atlanta, a uh, very metropolitan city, um, it's a city that over you know the previous, call it 20 to 25 years, had grown from a million people to now it's, it's north of 7 million people. Um, and those folks have to come from somewhere. And so... There is a distinctly um, very authentic and unique Southern feel um, to Atlanta that we love. 
but but at the at the same time there is this this large eclectic mix of people from not only all, only all of, all over the country but all over the world and so um, being in Metro Atlanta sort of I think cushions some of that gosh I was a northerner and and came south um, add to it that southern culture of open and and warm and graciousness um, re- really just made for an incredibly soft and wonderful landing, quite frankly, for me and, and my family. Um, from a business standpoint, staying within the same you know industry and moving to a very similar type of organization in terms of the things that we do uh, also made it a lot easier. Now, the way we go about doing some of those things and the scope of those things, yeah, have there was we've had some significant change in that you know over the last six years. Yeah, and, and I, I can... I can imagine when you come into, you know, you, you want to make it your own and you want to put your spin on it. And, and I'll just give a plug. You've had, you had a great mentor for a number of years, Clark Price, and taking all of that knowledge and, and things that you've seen within the association, within the, from the state and national level and, and putting the Boyd Search brand in Georgia obviously took time, but from an out, well, I'm not an outsider. I'm a member. Uh, from a member's perspective, because it was a side story. Uh, when you left Ohio, I told you your first day on the job, I'd be your first new paying member, and and, and I did that, and I'm still a member because you haven't pissed me off yet, which which is <laughs> which is really good. <laughs> and I'm working hard to do it. <laughs> You're not working hard enough. <laughs> Very patient. <laughs> <laughs> but and and coming in and putting your own stamp on things obviously takes time, and and, and I've known some of your past chairs of your board and working with them, but you ultimately did change that overall culture within the organization. Yes. Can you kind of describe the, the feel of the, of the culture prior to you taking over and how that feel has changed over the last six, seven years? Well, I have to, you know, qualify any and all discussions about this by saying it, it, whatever we've accomplished it is, by and large, a product of the fact that we, I came into an organization that had leadership um, and has leadership that wanted change. Um, and that is, that's significant in terms of being able to move forward, you know, positively and, and productively uh, or in a productive way. And, you know, the, the way things were when I got here compared to the way they are now, it, it, it's not necessarily a ma- matter of right and wrong as much as it is um, just the, the world has changed. And so when, when I got to Georgia um, from a staff perspective, from a, a leadership perspective, from a, a structure and the way we, we went about most of our business, it was, it was very much modeled after um, the association world that existed 20, 30, and 40 years ago in terms of uh, access to member volunteers and the, the amount and the amount of time that they could give and the scope of work as a result of that time that they, that they were available to do, a lot of that has changed. As, as, as America has changed, as the world has changed, and you have more two-income families and you have you know, time becoming an even more precious commodity, associations have, uh, by and large, become more staff-driven. And so one of the major changes um, that we have, have gone through is we have not increased our staff, but we have changed the scope um, and or the definition of the type of people we hire and, and the job descriptions um, that they're filling. That, that's taken time. It was a matter of, of, of employees that were here either accepting new roles and new responsibilities and or 
you know, people um, moving on for a variety of reasons and then, and then filling those uh, spots with um, more professionally oriented staff, if you will, as opposed to administratively oriented staff. Okay, yeah, anytime uh, the new sheriff or new CEO, president CEO come into town, there's there's always some natural attrition that occurs, and finding the right people to replace them, as you said, is uh, your, your number one priority. But I, I want to take a, a step back for a moment, because I, I, as you were talking about this, reflected on the conversation that we had when you were telling me about the hiring process that you went through, you share the story, because I... I I believe that at one point they they said, well, what are you going to do your first day on the job or what's the first thing you're going to change? And, and, and I love the answer that you gave them. Well, they asked me, what what do you think you'll do? You know, your first year on the job, what will that look like? What will you accomplish? You know, and I, I had thought about that, uh, that I would be asked that question in the interview process and, and had developed what I thought was a well-articulated and reasoned response. And in the moment when they asked me that, I kind of, I looked around the room and I said, well, um, and I didn't answer it the way I had done practicing at home and with my wife and on the plane and all those things. And I just said, well, actually, I'm not going to do anything. The reality is I've got a lot to learn about who you are, uh, who the staff are, um, what our priorities are. You guys have a lot to learn about who I am and and the way all I will lead. I mean, certainly you're getting some of those answers in this interview process, but the reality is I don't really intend to do anything for the first year except learn and 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 understand the people and the stakeholders and um, and spend some time developing what that what the plan will be and what the priorities are. Yeah, and I I love that answer because I, I I you went on a listening tour basically, and I I think that's critical with leadership. There's a story back in I think it was like a 2001. Xerox was hemorrhaging cash. They were in trouble. They replaced their CEO, and there was a lot of pressure on this woman to enact change, but she was reluctant to do anything at first because she spent three months, three to four months on the road listening to the constituents, listening to the employees, asking the questions, having dialogue. And then after that listening tour came back and got the senior team together and, and, and articulated it back and they came up with a plan and formulated that plan and then went back out and articulated back, this is what you guys wanted and this is what we did. And that was the essence that turned Xerox around. And she felt like if, if she had to immediately enact change without understanding who their internal and external customer were and who those stakeholders were, she was going to be an absolute failure. Yeah. And I, and I, I think, uh, another big piece of that, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Another sort of big piece of the puzzle for us here is that we, you know, we weren't on fire. Um, we were a, a, a solid organization with, with quality staff, um, great leadership, uh, and, and a very, very stable balance sheet. And so we, we were, we needed change, not so much because we were in a desperate situation, but just because the profession, uh, and the world, um, was sort of, you know, mo- moving us, uh, in a different direction. When you get to change an environment, um, where your hair's not on fire, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a lot more fun. I, I'm not going to say that it's easier, but it's, it's certainly more fun and you can take the time, you can take more time to make sure you get it right. You've got a pair from what I've seen from, from like I said, from the outside and, and, and having had some discussions with some 
prior members and, and current members and past chairs, you've assimilated very well in, in, into that culture. I think you've got some high re- respect, high regards from your membership and from your leadership team. Well, for those of you that, that don't know, when you come from the north and you come down south, you are a Yankee. <laughs> uh, as soon as you buy property, you are a damn Yankee. <laughs> And then, then you may or may not be, you know, accepted as, as a Southerner. And I have a, a past chair that is uh, a dear friend, and he has teased me since I got here about being a Yankee, and then he teased me about being a damn Yankee. And it was earlier this spring that he looked at me and said, you know what, you're one of ours now. And that was a, that, that was a great moment. And it just, I mean, it, it, that story for me um, is emblematic of the trust and the respect and the relationships that we have as an organization um, that has made change easier. Uh, the reality is one of the great differences between the Ohio Society and the Georgia Society, and it's, it's, not, a, it's not, a, again, not a right or wrong, it's just a difference. Um, the Georgia Society, when I got here, still very much had a, a feeling of a club. It was much more of a connected community in that regard, especially among um, the leaders, uh, past chairs, past board members, current leaders, um, that type of stuff. And it, and it, all of that um, has helped uh, support and make the things that we've done um, you know, better than what, what we could have otherwise. So very lucky in that regard. Uh, so, so you've, you've got that, 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 the, and you still have that fellowship model in, in, in place. Uh, and, and I'm taking that term from Chris Jenkins, the CEO of the South Carolina Association, that, 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 that club, that fellowship, that, that I, I, I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you type of, of, of association. You did tell me another story this year at, at the C's conference uh, about one of your members or one of your board members bought you a new suit. <laughs> yeah, I, when I uh, when I when I got here, uh, obviously seersucker suits are uh, are a thing, and I had made mention of maybe, gosh, may, maybe I'll have to get a a seersucker suit. And I had a uh, uh, a person that was in leadership. They were they were not on the board yet, but they they came on the board in the next year. But at the time, said to me, no, 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 you, you're not you're not buying yourself a seersucker suit. Um, if you're here five years. Uh, on your fifth anniversary, I will buy you a seersucker suit. We'll go get you a custom fit seersucker suit. And sure enough, um, in 2016, on my anniversary date, or right around there, I got a text message that says, we need to get together and go to my suit guy. And, and he was true to his word and, and, and bought me a seersucker suit. So, uh, and it's the best piece of clothing I've ever owned. I've never had custom fit like that before, and it's spectacular. So it's like, so it's like butter, huh? Oh my goodness gracious! I don't know that I look good in it. I don't know that I look good in anything. But that, I mean, if I'm going to look good in something, it's going to be that. It's going to be. So, I, I do, you, do you have to have a picture of that that you could send me that I could put on the website so people could see you in this seer soccer suit? I think I do somewhere. I'll see if I'm capable of digging it out. Okay, that that would that would be great because I, I I mean I would I I would love to see that as well. So it's 2017, getting ready to wrap up and move into 2018. Where do you see the profession going over the next five years? There's a, there's a lot of changes that are occurring. And what's your perspective? What's your take on how the profession's moving? I, I'm going to be probably overly honest here when I talk about we, we, there are a lot of things impacting the profession, uh, whether you're in public accounting, whether you are in education, particularly education. I think we, we, we uh, tend to either undervalue or underestimate 
the 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 amount of change that needs to happen, um, particularly from a curriculum perspective on the education front. But there are a lot of things, from demographic changes right to technology, to the regulatory environment and increasing globalization of everything, and and everybody knows that those things are. And at this point, for me, I am I am so exhausted with the oh my gosh the rapid pace of change and oh my gosh it's all you know be ready now or the sky is falling kind of stuff. And I so we we've actually taken some time to do what we're, we're calling conversations with smart people uh, and, or dinner with smart people, if you will. And, and the current chair of the board and I um, are, have already done uh, more than a handful and we'll do more where we're just spending time talking to our stakeholders over dinner. The resounding theme coming from that, and these are people that are in uh, investment banking, they are uh, managing partners of significant, you know, large firms, medium-sized firms, uh, CFOs, uh, and there is there has been a theme uh, in all of those that, quite honestly, surprised me a little bit. And from the society's perspective, in terms of a business and serving its members, they've all just said, kind of hold the course. We we the the baseline um, things that that we do as an organization in terms of you know, protecting the integrity of the, the credential and advocating uh, on behalf of, of, of the profession at the state house and doing things in the, the interest of the public trust and, and those types of things are bedrock and will continue to be bedrock. So don't, don't freak out so much over all this stuff that you drastically change the scope of who we are and how we function and how we see ourselves because we really don't have any idea how all this dust is going to settle out. So I'm, I'm getting very much, uh, not marching orders, but, but advice that is, you know, that incremental sort of look at things, that sort of constant and everyday pursuit of what might be different that day and, and adjusting to it, which is how we've operated for six years, six and a half years since I got here, is the right thing. And I, I quite honestly, before we embarked on those conversations, I was worried that, our sort of incremental approach to things maybe wasn't addressing some of the moonshot problems or opportunities that are out there. Um, and, and we may well be missing some things. Uh, I know we're missing some things. It's, you don't not miss things. But so my, my outlook for the future of the Georgia Society right now is steady as it goes, but eyes up. Uh, the profession, there's no question that the profession is going to face significant changes, and we're already seeing it in terms of the makeup of firms, who they're hiring, you know, 8,000 fewer accounting grads hired last year than in the previous year. That trend is likely only going to continue because of the scope of services and types of things the firms are offering and the way they're operating and their own internal needs, uh, especially on the public accounting side. But I think a lot of that translates um, to other sectors. The reality is I think there's going to continue to be tremendous opportunity for those that are in the business of providing validation, verification, um, and trust in things. You know, if I getting a little off scope on this a little bit, if, if we if you talk about the election last year, and I don't I don't want to get into politics per se, but if you if you look at the way some of the, the things went down with the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee, there's sort of a I think an erosion of trust in the system. Whether those things were real or perceived or not doesn't matter. And I, I think as we move forward as a culture and, and, and as, a, as a country, the need to be able to understand if things are verifiable and trustworthy or not is only going to grow, and it's not just financial information. 
Uh, and so I think there's tremendous upside to being in a position or in a profession that's bedrock is independence and integrity. And figuring out how to, to leverage those things both for the, the good of the profession and the, you know, the interest of the public trust uh, is, is one of the things I think we, we need to do together, firms, uh, industry, state societies, AICPA, and the like. I, I thoroughly agree. But you brought up trust, which uh, the, the summer uh, at the National Speakers Association Annual Convention, a gentleman by the name of David Horsager, who wrote the book The Trust Edge, did a, a general session. And this quote has has probably had this most profound effect on my thinking uh, since I heard it. And he says, everything of you, I think you would agree with this and the audience would agree with it. Everything of value is built on trust. The lack of trust is the biggest expense organizations incur. Yeah, pretty profound. It is pretty, it is pretty profound. And, and you just brought it up. Whether it's the election, whether it's the, the lack of trust from the workforce to the C-suite, but that lack of trust is a, is a huge expense. And, and that is that opportunity because we need to keep our core, the independence, integrity, public trust, all of that, that that this profession has been built on need not change when other things around us change. That's still the core. That's still the bedrock that cannot change. And, and actually, we might have to raise that, that level up, that, that trust level up due to the fact there's so much lack of trust that, that's out there. You know, it, it's interesting. I had um, a cousin on my wife's side of the family, you know, text me. We often exchange texts about politics and sports, and he, he sent me a response to, uh, I believe it was a congressman in Indiana um, that had proposed, you know, licensing journalists, and, and it was a result of, you know, some of the things that President Trump had, had, had said, uh, and, it, you know, it was in a negative sense, oh, my gosh, that's fascism, and, I, and I, we couldn't do that, freedom of the press, and I actually responded to him. I'm like, you know, you actually sent that to the wrong guy because I, I represent a profession that licenses and regulates itself because its primary interest is the public trust. And uh, it might, and, and maybe it is time for, for the press to self-regulate. I'm not suggesting uh, someone else regulate, but to self-regulate and to uh, license a journalist that adheres to a core set of standards um, and journalistic integrity. I mean, I know journalists in theory do, but we are so flooded with not journalists, but opinionists and editorialist, uh, that I'm like, you know, I would be, as a consumer, would be willing to pay uh, for news and information that came from a source that held itself to a higher standard, much like you're willing, that you're going to pay for an audit from a CPA, because you know they meet certain criteria, certain standards, and, and they, are, they hold themselves and, and the profession holds each other accountable to those things. And I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I converted him, but I certainly got him off the idea that just licensing a uh, a uh, member of the press would be an awful, terrible thing. That's an interesting concept. I've, I've never, I've never thought about that. Well, I hadn't either until he texted me. So it was, <laughs> I, I, there might be a thousand things wrong with my idea. I just it, it it occurred to me that maybe it's not bad. I don't know. Well, there, there, there's so much there's so much out there. And as we, you know, the lack of a better term, the fake news or whatever, the ability to look at something and go, okay, this is straight and narrow, it's it's sourced, it's it's valid, and let's get it out there. Uh, and then 
as a consumer, I have trust in this piece of information. Uh, you know what? Uh, 15, 20 years ago, that was never even part of the conversation. But I think... Didn't need to be, right? No, it didn't I mean, need to be. But the, I, I, the advent of, of, of social media, the advent of these other channels that people get their information from that hasn't been vetted or, or, or sourced or it's like it's just opinion can be can be toxic in so many ways absolutely you know if, if we think about it what one of our darkest parts i think recently of of the accounting profession was everything that surrounded the enrons the worldcom so on and so forth but i still remember hearing barry melance on the the president CEO of the AICPA said there was a survey and, and the trustworthiness of CPAs had declined. But then on the other side, they asked the question, well, do you trust your CPA? And that didn't decline. It was still up in the high 80s. Yeah. And people had the same perspective about Congress back then as well. By the way, it was Congress stinks, but my congressman's great. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they still have that same feeling today. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure the data is out there. I just, I don't have it. It's yeah. not in front of me. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. Congress, let's get rid of them all except my guy. I, <laughs> right. I, I, I want to I, I make sure that, that this person stays. And then I've heard, you know, you know, everything from we need term limits and yada, yada, yada. Lack of trust is the biggest expense organizations incur. Yep. And if we think about that, it's, to some degree, the whole... Sarbanes-Oxley Dodd-Frank legislation that was enacted was because of a lack of trust within organizations for what they were doing. They needed more, more and more regulation, which involved our profession even more so than ever before. Well, building, building trust, I'm a big believer that transparency is the single easiest way to build it and maintain it. You know, for me, uh, in with 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 staff, with our with our board, with our we have a council, and, and everybody. It, it oftentimes that means revealing, you know, uh, either parts of yourself or mistakes you've made that that you might not be proud of, or 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 that maybe they trouble you, maybe they trouble other people, or whatever. It, it doesn't matter. Having transparency on the good and the bad. Um, ultimately, for me, is the that the biggest driver of trust. So we do do things with our board that I've I've quite honestly had colleagues uh, around the country, and, and and I understand why. And I, I so it's not, again not right or wrong. It's just a difference in in approach. You know, look at me or say, wow, you you would share that or you would do that. Like never in a million years would I talk about that with my board. And I very very early on made made it uh, very clear to my board that um, one of my goals uh, and the staff. Um, is that they'd never be surprised. I mean, things are going to happen at times and changes are going to come that I'm going to catch people off guard, but I certainly don't want them ever going, well, that, that he intentionally didn't disclose that or didn't tell us this because of whatever the reason might be. Um, I, I, I work hard so that people don't have those moments. Right. That's um, Transparency goes a long way. And because once, once if, if you're not transparent, you know they're going to find out. We don't think they're going to find out, but they're going to find out. And once they find out, all that trust has gone away. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done the same thing as with, with with my my big client. I've screwed up a couple times, and once I realized I screwed up, picked up the phone, called him, and said, "Hey, I screwed up. I, I I did this. I wasn't thinking. 
uh, and, and here's the way I think we can solve it. And you know, it might be it might be a difficult conversation at that point in time, but that level of trust has never fallen. But if I were to try to hide it, and 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 hope that they would never find out, and when they do, I, I'm, my business is dead in the water. Yeah, tough to recapture or rebuild at that point. Can be done, but it's tough. It, 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 it is really tough. It is, it, is, it is really, really tough to do that. Over the last years that you've been there, what's been the biggest highlight for you? Oh, uh, for me or the organization or the profession or... Let's start with you and then go to, then go to the association. This might, it might sound cliche, but it, it, it genuine is very genuine. Highlight for me is when you have people that work for you that excel. They either love what they do or they grind it through a really hard, uh, you know, hard um, period, whatever it is, and, and, they, and they excel. And when they have those moments, then they realize, man, I really achieved something or I really got bad, better or I really changed. And, and, and when, those, when you see those moments happen or you see someone realize um, that they're capable of better and more because they, they lived up to their own expectation or my expectation or whatever it might be. I, I, I literally live for those moments. People, you know, people ask me, what do you do for a living? And I I'll, I'll oftentimes tease them that they don't want to know because once I start telling them, they start to regret it immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I do, I give the answer a lot. And it's, again, it's a, it is a cliche, but my job is to um, hire good people give them the right environment and the right resources and then kind of get out of their way and let them be who they're capable of being. Because I'm not, I I don't have, I don't have any, I don't have any of the answers, let alone all the answers. I don't have any of the answers. And so, you know, you, you have to give people the opportunity to try their own solutions and come up with their own answers. And I just, I really, really enjoy that process of finding people and, giving them the opportunity to succeed and then ultimately watching them succeed. And sometimes that means they go on to other organizations because they run out of opportunities here to either make more money or grow in responsibility or whatever. And, and so when you have people leave that get those opportunities, that's, 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 a, that's a win um, for them. It's a win for the organization. It's a win for the profession. So, yeah, I really, I really thrive on those things. Wow. That, that was not the answer I was expecting, but that's the answer that I love. That's, that's great, um, and, and you could tell in your voice, which is even better. Uh, you, you can tell you can tell the passion and sincerity uh, of of you really do love what you do, and you love having that impact on people and, and watching them grow and stuff. What's been the greatest thing that's occurred at the Georgia Society of CPAs? Wow, we've had a lot of good wins, um, but you know, in terms of things we've done for the profession. Um, over the last six years, I'll say our, our greatest professional win happened within the first uh, few years of, 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 of being here. Um, and NASBA, and rightfully so, um, had referred to Georgia as, 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 if not the worst, one of the worst states in terms of our ability to self-regulate the profession and maintain the public trust in terms of you know, the efficacy and integrity of, of the CPA. Um, because of the, the position that our state board of accountancy had been put in, it wasn't 
it wasn't because we had bad members of the state board. It's because from a state funding and positioning perspective, they were put into a bad position. In fact, one of the only reasons we weren't totally terrible was because of the dedicated um, members of the state board of accountancy that, that we had that, that we were able to, you know, maintain some level of, of effectiveness. Um, and we took under, uh, we took on the huge task of legislatively uh, trying and then succeeding to create basically the state board, I'll say as its own state agency, there's some nuances to that, where they're having, the, you know, they have their own budget and, and an executive director that is solely appointed to them and they've got their own staff and um, NASBA now, uh, and quite in, in public remarks at the NASBA annual meeting, Ken Bishop um, referred to Georgia as the model um, for state regulatory body. And uh, so we, we have a lot of pride in taking on the challenge that was in an environment and in a state where more government is seen as absolutely a non-political starter, being able to advocate for and fight for and um, the right of this profession to self-regulate itself and do so in an effective manner. That makes us smile a lot. We take a lot of pride in that. And it, and it, um, it took a lot of, a lot of different people with a lot of different leadership qualities um, to get it done. Wow, that's impressive to go from one of the wars to being publicly uh, recognized as the model. That makes me smile. And I'm a member. I'm a member. So that makes me smile too. <laughs> and thank you for that, by the way. I didn't say that. <laughs> thank you for being a member. <laughs> uh, with, with your background in education and training, where do you see this moving into the future? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I had good answers there. It, it so much hinges on the regulatory environment. That is the, right, that's the driver. I, I get that we talk about how, how people learn and how they want to learn and how the marketplace is going to drive all of that. And, and it's, that's true to some extent. But at the end of the day, people still have to comply with a regulatory requirement that, you know, was developed decades ago. So I honestly don't know where it's going to go. Uh, I have heard uh, and listened and been a part of conversations that have gone from the extreme of we shouldn't have it because our interactions with our colleagues and our clients and the businesses we operate in, you know, in order for us to d deliver a product to the marketplace that they're going to value and that they're going to purchase um, requires us to have that knowledge and be in pursuit of that knowledge. And so we don't, we don't need the regulatory environment make it, to make us do it because the market makes us do it. So I've, heard, I've been a part of those conversations to the other extreme where we've talked about, gosh, you know, we have this computerized system that is designed to test people's qualifications about being a CPA. Maybe we could do something that is, you know, every, I'm making this up, every couple of years you go in and take a test, you say, you say, here are the things I'm doing as a practitioner or, or as, you know, in my professional life, and it evaluates what you're doing and creates an exam for you, and you take that exam, and it tells you, okay, based on what you're doing and based on what your knowledge is, here are your gaps. And so over the next one year, two years, three years, whatever it is, you're, you, need to, you need to develop a coursework or learning work or whatever that helps plug those gaps. And... Those are two very, you know, huge extremes in that in that conversation. It, it's going to be interesting to watch state societies, AICPA, NASBA, the profession, 
uh, walk the path that is change in that CPE regulatory environment. When when you find when you find somebody that has the answers, let me know because I got to <laughs> check. They're waiting for them. <laughs> well, I. I... I'm sure you know that Indiana passed a law about competency-based education as part of the, their license renewal. Yep. And I, I thought, you know, great step in the right direction. And they've, and they've done it for ethics, and they're doing it for um, a lot of the, the leadership stuff, trying to figure out the whole aspect from, from, from tax and audit. But th- that, that one extreme that you, that you were – discussing about the computerization and developing a curriculum, uh, an individual curriculum for the person on what they need to accomplish over the next year, conjured up this thought that Watson is going to be programmed in a way that will go, hi, Pete Margarita, CPA, and I feed this information into it. And maybe what I want to accomplish in the future and out spits out a curriculum of, of what I need to accomplish over the next year, two years, three years, uh, in order to be proficient in that. I, you know what? I've never thought about that, but I could almost to some degree see that. But I'm, as I'm saying that I'm going, that's very Jetson-y. <laughs> it, it, it is, isn't it? Um, I, I had somebody say to me uh, in a conversation, I was, it was just this week, they were like, you know, you used to have to know the answers. Now you just have to know how to find the answers. Bingo. But but pretty soon, Watson or something like that is going to have all the answers and how to find them for you anyway. So what's that mean? What what's the next big skill? Right? What's the next thing that will make us professionals? Not just CPAs, but a- anybody that's in a higher profession or or some type of you know knowledge based work. I go back to communication skills. <sighs> Amen. Uh, th- I, that's. That's you know we, we we tend to call them soft skills, but they're awful. They're very hard to master. Yes, yeah, some of them are innate, some of them are uh, developed. I think an individual has to have some level of awareness of their deficiencies. I think they can build um, and improve and and build skills that they don't have innately um, over time. And I don't know that they have to be in, incredibly intentional about it. But I do think they they need to at least have a casual awareness of the deficiencies so that they can even, uh, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously put themselves in positions to um, improve upon those things. I, I interviewed a, a young woman for a position just this week, um, and, you know, she, she talked about how when she was in high school and college, she was uh, an introvert in a very, very significant way. And I'm look, I kind of looked at her funny. I'm like, you don't, you don't exhibit those traits sitting here. And she was like, well, I... I've worked as a waitress for six years as I went through college and stuff, and it it forced me to develop skills that I that I didn't have and that weren't natural to me. She didn't know she was doing that, but she figured it out over time. That's that's funny you should say that because uh, I was speaking at a tax conference a few years ago, and it wasn't about tax base. It was it was about you know communication skills. And some gentleman comes up to me and goes, "You know what? We need to get here's what we need to do. We need to get rid of the current intern system." And instead of sending these kids to firms, their internship should be in retail, restaurant, something like that, where they have to interact with the public. Do a year and a half, two years, that that's the best internship that we could offer a, a student today is learn how to deal with people and, and, and put them in restaurants, put them, put them in retail. That's a bold move. <laughs> uh, it would be, I, I mean, I, and I, I, 
actually kind of on the surface of it without a lot of forethought really agree with it. And it, it does run a little counter to we are starting to experience here. I had um, a partner in a firm tell me a couple of months ago that they are they are likely going to start offering jobs to sophomores. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, that's, yeah, it's like an eighth grader getting a scholarship, right? Um, right. And I, I, you know, I just looked at them wide-eyed and they looked back at me wide-eyed, but they're like, you know, the race for people um, is so intense that, that they feel like they're being forced into that environment. And so doing the things you just talked about would almost be counter to that, but I think would ultimately be much more productive for for everybody. I think so too. And, and I also think that our perception has to change and in, in, in the context of, I, I love asking our, the, our audience, what business are you in? And I get audit tasks consulting, and I, I just tell them that's a byproduct of, of the real business that we're in. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll purposely get them a little bit uncomfortable. And then I tell the business that we're in, we're in the people business first and foremost, because without people, we have no business. And if we're turning and burning through these people, maybe we need to look and see how we're treating those people, whether they're internal client or external client and what skills are we offering them. And, 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 and then because it goes back to like even Richard Branson, he goes, I, and it's, and this is, sounds like, like what you're doing there. I don't worry about my, he goes, I don't worry about my customers. I worry about the people I hire. And if I put the right people in the right jobs, the right place, they will take care of my customers. That's right. It is. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we don't see that. We, we forget about the human aspect of it. Uh, I had a partner in a firm. I asked her this question. Why did you become an accountant? Why did you become a CPA? And her answer was, because I didn't like people. <laughs> and, and, and I and I laughed. I said, "But wait a minute, you're a partner." So, oh yeah, I, I had I, I learned that the hard way. I, I realized early on that just coming in doing tax returns was not was not a career. I, I learned that I need to interact. I needed to communicate. I needed to connect with people. And she said she worked very very hard in, in order to hone those skills. She she intuitively initiated this change and went and got so far out of her comfort zone uh, that she made it to a partner level. And she doesn't, you know, she goes, I could stand in front of, you know, 400 people and, and, and talk to clients and deliver courses and stuff. I've, I, I've, I've learned. It's taken a while, but I've learned. But she consciously realized her deficit and fixed it. Yep. And I'm sure it took time. She wasn't able to just take a class to do that. <laughs> no. You, I'm sure class helped, but... <laughs> it's, the class is the starting point. It, it's holding yourself accountable. Um, Simon Sinek says, you can't take a leadership class and become a leader. You, you have to practice it every single day in order to be proficient at it. Just by taking a class or, or whatever doesn't make you that. It's yourself holding yourself accountable and doing, taking those small steps every single day that at one point in time, now it becomes a bigger stride. That's right. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, that's probably one of the challenges that we have in the profession is along those lines. But I tell you what, I've, I've been, I've been in the profession for a number of years. I absolutely. <laughs> You're not going to say how many Pete. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm if, kidding. If I, I'm kidding. Uh, more than 20. Okay, there you go. Less than 40. <laughs> there we go. All right. And Small enough window. <laughs> small enough window, exactly. And 
I wouldn't go back and change a thing. Uh, I, I've said this before. I love this profession. Uh, I, I love the quirkiness of it. I love the opportunities that are out there. I, I, I love the, the people I come in contact with. But most importantly, I love the opportunities that this profession has for those who are coming up in it. Uh, I, I think the opportunities are, are, are just immense. It's just getting our mind in the right way, getting involved with, you know, this is a plug, getting involved, volunteering at your state society. It goes a long way in building those leadership skills, goes a long way in developing a network. There's just unending opportunities for us to continue to improve, to be the best that we are. and. The Georgia Society uh, is is doing that for its members, and uh, we just need more of them to step up and, and, and take a more active role. Amen. Can, yeah, can, can I get an amen for that, please? <laughs> amen. Amen. Well, Boyd, I don't want to take up any more of your precious time, and I look forward to our next time that we get together. But first of all, thank you for... Uh, uh, a great conversation. I, I always enjoy our conversations. I'm glad we finally got one recorded. <laughs> Thank you. you. You've made me, as always, you make me think in a little bit of a different direction every time we talk. And I appreciate your time. And I look forward to uh, seeing you soon, my friend. I appreciate your friendship, Pete. Thank you so much. I would like to thank Boyd again from sharing his knowledge and stories about his time as president and CEO of the Georgia Society of CPAs. This is a huge understatement, but Boyd really does love his job in all aspects. Congrats, Boyd. You're, you're making a difference. In episode 81, my guest is Jerry Esselstein, and Jerry has held a variety of leadership positions at the Ohio Society of CPAs, at AICPA, and at the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy. Remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you better connect and communicate with those in your organization and in your life. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.